following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. And then in the third week, uh, we saw that uh, Jesus, last week, we saw that Jesus uh, is not only God who came into human history, uh, not only the land that would be slain for the sins of the world, but he's also the man who came as the Messiah to usher in a new covenant, a new relationship between God and people. Whereas in the past, uh, the people of Israel had to um, obey all kinds of rules and regulations, perform all kinds of rituals according to their religion, that Jesus was coming to do away with those things and rather we could enter into a relationship with God by virtue of our faith. In Jesus. So we saw last week that Jesus took the water that belonged to the ritual, rituals and religion of the Jews and turned it into the wine, which represented the gladness and intimacy and closeness of relationship with God. And that he took the temple, which was the way, the way that people could engage with God, the only means by which they could meet with God and have a relationship with God, and replaced it with his body. The temple became his body. And so through Jesus we now have relationship with God. That rituals and certain sacred spaces have been replaced with relationship between us and our Creator, all because of what Jesus did for us. And this morning we're going to see Jesus is the Saviour who takes away the sin of everyone who believes in Him. And the way we're going to see that play out, the way we're going to see that presented is in the context of a conversation. A conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. A conversation that would change Nicodemus' life forever and change the course of human history. So I wonder if you've ever had a conversation that changed your life forever. Have you ever had a conversation that changed the course of your life? Maybe it was a, a conversation uh, that presented a new job opportunity that would change the course of your life. Maybe it was a, a conversation with the man or the woman who would become your husband or your wife. Maybe it was a conversation that presented a new opportunity, a new start, a new beginning. It might have been a conversation that was none of those things. It might have been a conversation that was devastating that would change your life in devastating ways. That's the conversation I remember most vividly um, that's just kind of burned into my brain. It was a conversation that absolutely devastated me and changed the course of my life. I remember I was seven years old. Um, one of my only vivid memories from being that old, I was in Heidelberg House in the old Austin Hospital over in Heidelberg uh, in the cancer ward there. And that's where my mum had been receiving treatment for some months and uh, at this point, she had improved quite a lot, quite sharply improved. And so I had high hopes for the future. And I remember uh, me and my family being sat down in this little room and her doctor coming in. And, and the doctor said that my mum was going to be coming home. And my heart just kind of soared. You know, this was the, the news I'd been waiting for. My mum was going to come home. I wouldn't have to engage with her uh, in a hospital ward anymore. She would be home. And then the devastating news came right on the back of that news that she was coming home because, in the doctor's words, there was nothing more they could do. 
And so she wasn't coming home to live and enjoy the rest of her life with me and my brothers and my sister, but she was coming home to die, and that's exactly what happened. One conversation that changes the course of my life. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of conversation. It's that kind of conversation that we're going to read about today. It's the kind of conversation that not only changed Nicodemus's life, but the lives of countless people since it happened. So let's pick it up. We're just going to read it together, starting in verse 1 to 3. This is John's report. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we're introduced to a man now named Nicodemus. John does this throughout his gospel. He reports more than any of the other gospel writers uh, conversations that Jesus has, lengthy encounters that Jesus has uh, with people that changes their lives forever. We're going to see in a couple of weeks Jesus' conversation with the woman of Samaria at the well that changed her life forever and the, and the people of her town forever. And so John d- does this, and it's really fascinating to see the way that Jesus engages with people in conversation. And you've got a man named Nicodemus coming during the night to visit Jesus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And as soon as we hear the, the name Pharisee, we think bad guys, because we know how the story turns out, most of us. Um, but not all Pharisees are the bad guys. They're not all kind of clothed in black and twisting the moustache and finding out how they can kill Jesus, all right? Nicodemus actually isn't that kind of guy. And John reports, uh, the only gospel writer to report, I think in chapter 7, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus against the Pharisees. And later in the gospel, after Jesus dies, Nicodemus helps a man named Joseph of Arimathea um, bury Jesus' body, an act of kindness. And so uh, Nicodemus is changed by this conversation, but even in the preceding time before the conversation, he comes as a man who respects Jesus. Uh, He comes as a man who uh, is a Pharisee, and this is a a sect of religious leaders who are very conservative, uh, Bible-believing. They had memorized the whole Old Testament. They would probably enjoy coming along to a church like this, where we have a great respect for God's Word, and we uh, try and teach the Word uh, expositionally. Okay, So these guys love the Word, uh, and they are on the lookout for the Messiah who the Old Testament prophesied would come. And so, so Nicodemus probably comes to Jesus um, curious about whether he is in fact the man that the Old Testament speaks about, the Messiah who would come and make all things right, who would rule over Jerusalem, over Israel, the true Israel for all time. And so he comes to Jesus and he respectfully says, Rabbi, and rabbi was a term of respect. Rabbi means teacher, and it was a term of respect. This was a man who was very learned, a scholar, someone who had memorized the Old Testament, who didn't need anyone to teach him anything in the eyes of the people of Israel, coming to a carpenter, an unlearned man by all accounts, and calling him teacher. He's effectively saying, Jesus, I want to learn from you. I'm willing to submit to you. I'm willing to hear from you. 
And so he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus, in his characteristic style, gets straight to the point. And his repost to Nicodemus, this learned man, is truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Two really important things that we learn about salvation uh, in this passage that carries over from the end of chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3. Two really important things that we learn. Those two things being that mere experience of God is not enough to save us and mere knowledge of God is not enough to save us. Mere experience, mere knowledge, not enough to save us. So let's track back a little bit to the end of uh, chapter 2. We skipped this last week because I knew that we would pick it up this week. This is part of our reading in last week's sermon. And I just want to read for you chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. John says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These people have had a profound experience of God. They've seen the signs of God. They've seen a miracle of God. And they have said, I believe in you, Jesus, in response to seeing these signs. And Jesus says, that's not enough. Don't trust signs. Don't put your faith in signs, in miracles, in experiences of God. Those things are not enough. Jesus says, John says of Jesus, he knows what is in man. What is in man is this sinful tendency to put our faith in that which is not worthy of our faith. In this case, to put our faith in experiences, in miracles. People do this all the time today. They will see a work of God, a wonder of God, even a genuine one in this case, and they will flock to those things, flock to that power, flock to those experiences. And as soon as they go through a period of time, weeks, months, years, where they don't experience that kind of power, they fall away because their faith was in the experience and not in the Son of God. Mere experience is not enough to save us, and mere knowledge is not enough enough to save us. Nicodemus comes as the most qualified man in the world. He's memorized the Old Testament. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Try and memorize that thing, right? He has perfect theology and it's not enough to save him. Am I saying you should not read your Bible? No. Am I saying you shouldn't memorize your Bible? No, by all means do that. But mere knowledge, mere head knowledge is not enough to save us. We sometimes draw a distinction between experience and knowledge. And I'm saying one or the other isn't enough to save us. Jesus says, rather, you must be born again. You must be born again. Again, it's not enough to see my works and entrust yourself to those things. It's not enough to read your Bible and entrust yourself to that. You must be born again. The question is, what does that really mean? 
What does that mean? You must be born again. What image comes to mind when you hear the word born again? For me, it takes me back to my experience. I worked and lived for a couple of years in the US and uh, I worked and lived in a very conservative Christian environment. And, uh, you know, I was fighting my first week because I said hell, I said damn, and I drank beer, all right? And that was the end of me. I could not be a Christian if that was the case. So very conservative. And, and these people uh, were very zealous, and there is a lot to commend them in their faith. Uh, they would refer to themselves as born-again Christians, as opposed to me, right? They were born-again Christians. I was a someone pretending to be a Christian. And it turned out they were right at the time, okay? But, but we sometimes see this distinction. The really zealous people, the real Bible thumpers, the people that stand on street corners, the, the people that hold up signs condemning people, they're born-again Christians. That's the kind of view we can have. You might have that view in mind when you hear that term. You might cringe when you hear Jesus talk about being born again. But that's not what Jesus is referring to here. It's not referring to a a certain culture of Christianity or cult of Christianity, a certain way of being, a certain way of speaking. Jesus says, you must be born again. And before we get to what that means, let's see Nicodemus' response. It's It's an entirely predictable response. It's an understandable response in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You you can hear the the sarcastic Jewish kind of humor coming out, right? Can he really be born again? Can I enter into my mother's womb? I don't know if he's trying to be sarcastic. His response is, if you've never heard this before, if you said Jesus, you know, if you're talking to Jesus and he said, you need to be born again, that's probably what you would think. Can I really kind of climb back in? Right? And come back out again? How does that work? Jesus says to him, verse 5 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now what's going on here? It seems like he said something confusing, Nicodemus doesn't get it, and then Jesus says something even more confusing. It's not getting any more clear. Jesus says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Seems just more confusing, right? Clearly Jesus expects Nicodemus to know what he's talking about. He even says to him in uh, verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So he expects Nicodemus to get it. Why would Nicodemus get what he's talking about? Because Nicodemus knows the Old Testament back to front. So it's there that we go to find out what Jesus is talking about what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. And the place we need to go is in Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. It should be on the screen for you. This is a, a prophecy, a new covenant promise of God that, that, that when the Messiah comes, 
this will happen. He says to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what it means to be born of water and the spirit. To be cleansed of all our uncleannesses and to be given God's spirit. That in the new covenant, because of what Jesus has done for us, God takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. God takes our filthiness, our sinfulness, our wretchedness and sprinkles it clean with water. That he takes out the spirit that's within us which is hardened towards God and gives us his spirit and makes us alive to him. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. And the emphasis here, both in this prophecy about what will happen in the New Covenant and throughout Scripture, the emphasis, the clear teaching of Scripture is that this is a work of God that happens despite us. There is no sense in which we are taking our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. There is no sense in which we, that God is responding to our eagerness to know Him. Quite the opposite. Just as you had nothing to do with being born, you have nothing to do with being born again. It's all a work of grace. It's all a work of God. lest you doubt this. I've got a few passages from Scripture to make it abundantly clear. So we're going to read some of these and it'll just depress us for a little while, all right? Romans 3, verse 10 to 11. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. No one wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves on their own volition, on their own initiative, I really need to know God. I really need to worship Jesus. Next one. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil all the time. That is the nature of the heart of stone that Ezekiel was just talking about. The inclination is only evil all the time. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The natural person, that is the person who has the heart of stone, the unregenerate person, the person that doesn't know Jesus, that person that hasn't been born again, the person who's been born of the flesh, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to Him, and He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8, 7-8 For the mind that is set on the flesh 
is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's, God's law or God's word. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you come here for a pep up? Let's keep going. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. This is the worst. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And John three nineteen to 20 from our passage here this morning, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That is the human condition, friends. The human condition is enmity towards God. Hardness towards God. By our very nature, we came into this world that way. My little boy Judah, four months old, he came into the world. I witnessed it happen. I'm still on medication for that. And then as he came into the world, he came into the world at enmity towards God. His heart was hard towards God. It is the human condition. We cannot escape it. And all of this means, John 6:44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Jesus. It's impossible. There is a barrier that cannot be breached. No one can come to God unless God first draws him. This is the the theological doctrines of total depravity, that every part of our being is corrupted. Not that we're as evil as we could be, thank God, he restrains that but that every part of us, every inclination is evil, is broken, is sinful, is fallen. And the doctrine of unconditional election, that is that God is the one who draws us, it's His initiative, it's His work that wakes us up to His reality, that raises us from the spiritual death that Ephesians 2 talked about, It's His work that does that, makes us alive to Him so that we can say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I want to follow you. It's that work that happens in our hearts ahead of time that saves us, that enables us to respond to Him. And it's unconditional. It's not based on who you are, where you live, how you grew up, what you've done, how many times you've been to church, what denomination you go to. How much money you give to church, whether you drink or smoke, whether you've been to jail, none of that has any bearing. It is unconditional. God's love is not based on anything you've done. God's regeneration of your soul from spiritual death to life, God's rebirth of you as a new creation is not based on anything you have ever done. Praise be to God. 
Because I'm guessing none of us would be here if that was the case. It's a quirk of history and a travesty of history that this view of God has come to be known as Calvinism, named after John Calvin. It has very little to do with that man. John Calvin himself said, I received these doctrines from reading the Gospel of John. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he makes it so very clear in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In both Hebrew and Greek, the original languages of the Old and New Testament, the word wind and the word spirit are the same word. In Greek, it's pneuma, where we get the word like pneumatic tire or anything to do with air, generally. Jesus says, the spirit, the wind, the spirit of God blows like the wind. We don't control the wind. We don't determine the wind. The wind blows where it wills. The wind does what it likes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. They didn't control their new birth. They didn't manipulate their new birth. They didn't contribute to their new birth. The the wind blows where it wills. And so if you're here this morning, what does this mean for you? If you're a believer, it means you can fall on your face and praise God for His grace in your life. Because you did nothing, nothing, nothing contribute to your new birth. It was awesome seeing this play out right before our eyes, or before my eyes uh, last week. Uh, I didn't ask you beforehand, Aaron, so forgive me if I'm, um, uh, if I'm, if I'm being unkind, but we, Sarah and I sat with Aaron after the service last week, and she prayed with us, and she told us that she knows that she has been saved by Jesus, and she put his, her trust in him, and the, and the really interesting thing was, she said to me, it must be God doing this because I know I wouldn't have done this myself. Huh? Amen. The wind blows where it wills. Praise God for his unconditional grace. Nicodemus's response is telling and I hope we can relate to it. He says in verse 9, we'll read through to verse 15, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, have, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus' response is the response of all of us, if we're honest. How can this be? He can't fathom a relationship with God apart from his religious works. How can this be that all of this happens by grace, unconditionally? How is it that I can't contribute to my own standing with God? How can this be? How is it that my memorization of 
Old Testament scripture doesn't contribute to my standing with God? How is it that all of these rites and rituals that I perform, the life that I've dedicated to God, doesn't earn me anything before God? That's the response of many of us when we talk about unconditional love, unconditional grace. We want to be part of it. We want to contribute to it. I remember when I first heard about these things and I was defiant. I said that I was in college at the time. It took me to Bible college to actually hear this for the first time. My church that I grew up in never talked about these things and I heard the teacher say this and I was defiant. I stood up during the break and said, listen, this can't be right. I know what happened. I turned to Jesus. I accepted Jesus into my heart. I took the first step. Yeah, he came along to the party afterwards, but I did it first. We want to own this for ourselves, not knowing that I never, ever, ever in a billion years would have turned to him unless he first awoken me. That's why John says we love him because he first loved us. Why Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to the Father unless he first draws them. And so Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus gives him the answer that the only hope he has is not his own works, but the works of of Jesus himself, the works that he is yet to perform, the work of being crucified on the cross. And the way that he explains it to him is in a way that he would understand as an as a orthodox Jew, as a Pharisee, as a believer in the Old Testament scriptures. He takes him to a story from the Old Testament and the story is from Numbers 21. He says, as Moses was lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so let's read from Numbers chapter 21, and it's verse 4 to 9. It says, From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. This is the people of Israel after the Exodus. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So that's the story that Jesus calls to mind in Nicodemus' mind, in his memory. God's brought the people out of Israel. He saved them from slavery that was killing them by the thousands and hundreds of thousands. Graciously brought them out by his powerful hand. And now they've been in the wilderness a little while, getting to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in in this intervening period, they grumble. Why did you bring us out of slavery where we were dying by the hundreds and thousands? And why are you giving this food rather than letting us starve to death? Right? They're just petulant, 
obstinate little children. And so God teaches them a lesson by way of discipline. He sends fiery serpents into their midst and they get bitten and some people die. They acknowledge their sin. The discipline of God has its effect and Moses prays for them. God provides a gracious way out. He makes a serpent out of bronze, raises it up, and then when everyone looks at that, they're saved. And Jesus says, just as that serpent was raised up for the salvation of the people, so the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man will be raised up on the cross for the salvation of all people. Jesus knows that he will die. Jesus knows that he will be crucified. Jesus knows that he must be sacrificed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Which brings us to the clearest explanation of the gospel in a single verse in the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three sixteen. If you've got a red letter Bible like mine, you'll see that they've made this um, red, um, signifying that these are Jesus' words. Most modern scholars today will agree that they're actually John's words. It's difficult to tell in this circumstance because in the Greek there's no quote marks. Um, so normally the, the gospel writers make it really clear where they're speaking and then when Jesus or someone else is speaking. In this case, John hasn't done that. It's likely that these are actually John's comment, John's commentary on what Jesus has just said about being raised up that those who put their trust in him or believe in him would have eternal life. Um, and the reason for that is that there's a few reasons. One of them is that Jesus very rarely if ever calls God God. He calls him Father um, or something else. Uh, God is a title reserved for God for the rest of us, really. Um, and there's a few other lines of evidence. At the end of the day, it's not really anything to lose sleep over, all right? Uh, it's God's word and all of it is God-breathed and useful for us. All of that is inerrant and absolutely true. Um, but that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whether you've grown up in church or here for the first time, you know John 3.16. It's one of the most famous uh, sentences in the whole of human history. It's kind of become like a brand for Christianity, John 3.16. It's like Calvin Klein, Mercedes-Benz, Dolce & Gabbana, John 3.16. All right? It's become sort of like a brand for Christians, it's something we've be kind of known by. You see, especially in the U.S., at sporting events, people will hold up banners saying John 3.16. Uh, other celebrities will kind of big themselves up by inserting their own name, uh, 3.16. Jonathan 3.16, all right? They'll do that in order to, to kind of grab on to Jesus' own fame and popularity by, by use of his brand. Um, I, I love uh, English Premier League 
football and, um, and Liverpool is my favourite team. And I was watching the other day versus Fulham and, and uh, Kieran Richardson, who plays for Fulham, is a Christian and he scored, which I wasn't happy with, um, but then he turned away and ripped off his um, jersey and underneath was a singlet with John 3.16 written on it. No other explanation, just John 3.16. And he'd done that knowing that everyone who saw it would get it. Even in England, that secular country, England, people would get it. Everyone knows John 3.16 and it is the best, most comprehensive explanation of the gospel in one verse that we have. Let me just break it down for us. And I'm just going to finish our time together looking at this a couple of words at a time because it's worthy of our time as we finish. So first of all, for God. Very important that that's where we start. Unless it hasn't been clear up to this point, it's important that we start with God. God takes the initiative. It doesn't start with the world. It doesn't start with us. For God. God is the beginning point. God takes the initiative. And God so loved If we want to get this verse, we first have to understand that God is love, as John will say in his letter, his first letter to the churches. God is love. And out of his very nature, the abundance of his love, he did this. He gave his son. And there's a double meaning here in so loved. Um, there, there is the sense that it's, it conveys intensity of the love, that we might say, oh, I so love this. There is that sense in the original language, but it's not only that he so loves us, but there's a, a sort of a purpose clause in it, that he so loved, or you could say he loved in this way. Uh, that God so loved with intensity, that God loved in this way. That the answer to the question, how has God loved us? God loved us in this way. If anyone asks you, how do I know that God loves me? I don't receive God as a loving God. I think he's a judgmental God, that he's a harsh God, that he's an angry God. If someone says to you, how do I know God's loving? You can say, well, God loved us in this way. For God loved the world in this way. The world refers to the fallen, broken, hard-hearted, sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked, obstinate world that we're a part of. The world that's characterized by that chunk of text that I read before, the world that's opposed to God, the world that has a heart of stone, the world that's been born of the flesh, as Jesus said in verse 6, that world, that's the world that God gave His Son for. The world that hates God is the very world that God loved. For God so loved the world that He gave. That He gave His Son. That Jesus was given by God as his only son. He was given not only into the world to become a man, but he was given over to death. That's the sense of the word. Not just given, but given over to death. That as soon as Jesus was given, he was dead. 
He was a dead man walking. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. That's how the father gave over his son. He gave him over to death, to the death that we deserve because we are the world, because we are opposed to God, because we do deserve all that we get. Jesus gave his son over to us and over to death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The old term was only begotten son. It's his only unique, one-of-a-kind son. There isn't any other son. There isn't another Jesus. There isn't another second person of the Trinity. The Father gave his only son, his unique son, a -a one-of-a-kind son. He gave him over to death for the world that hated him. He gave his best Not just the best lamb of the flock, not just an unblemished cow out of the herd, but his one and only perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, friends, whoever believes in him. You know, I speak to so many people who say to me, they wish they could have this assurance of salvation. They wish they could have forgiveness of sin. They wish they could be sprinkled clean with water and given a new spirit and a heart of flesh. But for all of the things that they've done, if only they hadn't made these mistakes, if only they hadn't written themselves out of God's grace. But Jesus says, whoever believes in me it's unconditional whoever believes in him whoever believes in him whoever sees jesus whoever hears these messages whoever reads about jesus just reads through the book of john and sees who jesus is and what he's done and believes in him that is believes him to be who he says he is Whoever puts their faith in him and says, I trust that this is true. That Jesus is God in human flesh. That he did die in my place and for my sin. And that he was raised again to show me that that could be true of me as well. That I could be raised. That I could have eternal life. That everyone who believes in Jesus should not perish. What does it mean to perish? Well, he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So it's the opposite of eternal life to perish. To perish is the opposite of eternal life. And Jesus is saying, Whoever believes in Him will not have the opposite of eternal life. That is, friends, let's be honest, it's eternal condemnation. It's eternal death. It's eternity without God's blessing, without God's love, without God's grace, without God's life. John 3.36, just on the other side of the page, John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
and the sense there is eternal. The wrath of God remains on him that rejects the grace of God, that doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The wrath of God remains. The wrath of God remains forever. The righteous, just, deserved wrath of God remains forever. Friends, this is terrible. This is terrible news. It should make us weep. It should make us tremble. That in a billion years you could still be experiencing the righteous wrath of God, that it would remain on you forever, is terrible. It's terrifying. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Should not perish. That this can be avoided, praise be to God. That that is not the eternal destiny of anyone who puts their trust in Him. Who confesses that they believe that Jesus is who He says He is. For anyone that's born born again, that is not the reality of eternity. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That eternal wrath, that eternal condemnation, that eternal justice, deserved punishment, will not be. Will not be the destiny of those who trust in Jesus, but they will have eternal life. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean living forever. Right? It's not just some etern- like a fount of youth, fountain of youth. All right? It's not just some kind of thing that we can drink of and so then we'll be alive forever. Being alive forever is exactly what happens to everyone. Right? Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you will live forever. Everyone you meet today as you go to the shopping center, everyone you pass on the street, Everyone driving past our building right now will live forever. The question is, will you have eternal life of union with Jesus in his abundant provision of joy and peace? Or will you experience eternal life under his condemnation? According to Scripture and First and foremost, according to Jesus, there are two groups of people in the world. Those that will live forever in God's favour and those that will live forever in God's judgement. And if you want to take Scripture and believe it, then you must believe in that. So this is a sobering thought for us this morning. that if that is the reality of the world, if that is the reality of eternity, then what Jesus just said and what John just said has just become the most important news we can ever hear. That if truly Jesus came to save us from that terrible destiny, then that's the most important news we can ever hear. That if all of us We're by nature children of wrath, like Paul said in Ephesians 2, that all of us deserve that eternal condemnation, then the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners just became the most important news 
you could ever receive. And if Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection three days later really did happen, and if that's the vehicle by which we can be saved from what we deserve, then that just became the most important thing we can ever believe in. That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called the good news. And all of it, from start to finish, comes to us by grace. So if there's anything within you this morning that wants to respond, that you think, what do I need to do? Or if only I hadn't done that, then, then, then erase that now. John said, you remember in John chapter 1, that all who received him and believed in his name were made children of God. All you need do is receive. All you need do is receive. All you need do is receive. Receive the grace of God. Receive what Jesus has already done for you. When he died, he said it is finished and he meant it. No more to do. No more works to do. No more rituals to do. No more religion to practice. Just receive what he's done for you. So now I want us to take some time to do do just that. Do what I did as a 19-year-old, a broken, devastated 19-year-old, and receive the grace of Jesus. Do what Erin did in our midst last week as she submitted to God, as she believed in Jesus, in what he's done, and in who he is, and receive the grace of God. Do what many of us here this morning have done. Humbly come before God, acknowledge that you need to be saved from who you are, from your very nature and receive the grace of God. That all who receive grace and believe in Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, no amount of persuasion or motivation can make us trust in you. No amount of singing, no amount of church attendance, no amount of Sunday school, baptism or communion can save us. No amount of experience of the wonders of God, no amount of knowledge of your word can save us. Only you can save us by grace. And so we pray that the wind of the Spirit would blow through this place right now. That the wind of the Spirit would blow straight through us and kindle the snuffed out flames of our hearts. That you would take out our heart of stone that we could never remove on our own and give us a heart of flesh that only you can give us. Lord God, we had nothing to do with our birth and neither can we contribute to our new birth. 
There are people in this room today that need to be born again, just like each of us has needed to be born again. They need to be made alive to the reality of the universe, that you are our creator, that we are fallen, that you have moved to save us, and that we must receive Jesus as our saviour. Please, Lord God, enable that receiving now. Please ignite deadened hearts. Please regenerate spiritually dead people. Lord God, please come into our lives. Please break through. Please awaken us. Please awaken our souls. Awaken our hearts. And let us live the rest of our lives in abundant joy enjoying the wine of new relationship with you, of new covenant relationship where we are accepted and adopted and loved because of your grace, because of what Jesus has done in being raised up on the cross for us. This is good news. This is great news. This is life-changing news. May this morning be a conversation that changes our eternal destiny. May you save and snatch from the flames those who are on the path to destruction. May we flock to Jesus this morning. We praise you for your grace. In Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.